and to enhance our understanding of the passage. Reverend David. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, one of your faithful servants who gave everything. Help us to understand why on earth he did that, that we might do it too. In your precious name, amen. If you ever doubted how significantly Paul's conversion changed everything for him, this passage helps us understand and settles the matter, I think. Everything changes for Paul. All his value set shifts. It's a really significant thing. Paul starts off by saying, if there's people who have confidence in their flesh, and he's not talking about how good they look or anything like that, he's talking about whether the things that they do give them good standing before God. That's what he's talking about. And he said, if anyone had that kind of confidence, he, Paul, had that kind of confidence because he did everything and he was everything that you needed to do and to be to be righteous before God according to the flesh. The flesh being the kind of physical world, the way we do stuff in the world. He was a zealot. He was mad keen for God before he was a Christian and after he was a Christian. He was a Jew, tick. He was a Pharisee, tick. Before the law, blameless. A staggering claim. We'll look at that in a moment. He was a bit like me when I was a young Christian. I can relate to some of this. When I got converted, I became a mad keen Christian. I was a Jew too, so you know, I can relate to that part as well. But uh, I used to want to talk to anybody who would sit still long enough about my newfound faith in Jesus. I was a zealot. I was annoying. I was probably socially inappropriate and I kind of knew that. And in actual fact, some of that was more an expression of my need than it was an expression of love for the people who I was talking with. These things can be a bit complicated at times. But Paul was completely absorbed in his religion. He'd worked out the right way of doing everything according to the rules and he stuck with it. That was his sole purpose. And so he rose through the ranks of the structure of the religion of his day and he was well respected and powerful and he was righteous according to all those systems. Blameless before the law. What an incredible claim. You see, back then uh, the Pharisees had worked out, I think it's about 613 uh, laws that kind of made really clear the meaning or the impact in day-to-day life of the Ten Commandments. So they'd broken it down into how far you could walk on a Sabbath before walking became work and uh, whether knocking seeds off a table constituted sowing seeds, this kind of thing. They'd really broken it down into uh, very specific things which became very, very um, tightly constrained but, if you were serious, made possible... You could actually do it. Everything that they worked out according to the law, you could actually do if you set your mind to. And Paul maintains that he did. Whether he did or not, he really believed he did. And uh, he was blameless according to this structure 
of the law. Quite remarkable. That's the nature of laws and structures and things. We work them out so that we can actually fulfil them. They're no good to us if they're impossible to fulfil. So we always work out a structure that we can fulfil. Set your mind to it, you can fulfil it. And he was zealous. It wasn't just a, a, a game of mathematics where he wanted to do all the right things. He really believed this stuff so much so that he went out to persecute those who had been diverted and started to follow Jesus. Because for Paul, the, the Christian cult, this kind of heterodoxy, had come in and was threatening the purity of his faith. And he wasn't going to have a bar of it. He knew God would be unhappy about that. So he was going to be God's man to go out and stamp out this heresy that had come into the church. And so he was murdering Christians. He was pursuing them and taking them before the religious authorities and having them condemned and then overseeing the stoning of these people, which was a very brutal way to kill somebody. Now, there's some major problems with that approach, as you might be aware. One is that um, I just wanted to raise this because I think this is becoming more and more common. People who have a belief and they believe that because they're so committed to their God they have to go out and kill people that aren't committed to their God. And I think it has a, a number of issues, obviously, but the two ones that I want to draw out is that any God that needs me to defend that God is not so much of a God. So if you, if you believe in a God that needs you to go out and kill other people that don't believe in that God, that's not much of a God. The other problem is you have to assume that the way you see things is identical with the way God sees things. So that all the assessments that you make about whether someone should live or die or what should happen or not happen are identical with what you believe God thinks. Again, very, very problematic. We very rarely have that degree of understanding or certainty in relation, particularly matters of life and death and ending someone else's life. So I just put that in as an aside as we come into a time in history where the rise of religious extremism in all its many different expressions and different religious... Um, we can see people... It's really an expression of insecurity, not faith, when you feel you have to murder for the sake of your God. But Paul gets to the place where he decides all that, all his standing in the community, his entire identity and his faith structure, which was very, very developed and he'd lived it thoroughly his whole life, he came to the point of meeting Jesus and it all shifted he had a crisis of confidence in a way. Interestingly, not a crisis of whether he was actually blameless according to the law. He never says, uh, I used to think I was blameless according to the law. He says, I was blameless according to the law. So his crisis isn't in relation to his faithfulness in that regard. His crisis is in the value of being blameless before the law. I was still blameless before the law, but... What did that mean now? What was that all about? Something happened. The whole system of value that he was using somehow became rendered worthless, without value. He was still blameless and yet 
That blamelessness before the law had led him to persecute the one he was now saying was God. You can understand how this would have really done Paul's head in. He'd done everything right. And in the midst of doing everything right, he found himself doing everything wrong according to the God that broke in. See, Paul had an experience that changed all the values. He, he, the description of his encounter with Christ is he falls down and sees, his, well, sees a bright light, falls down and he's blinded. And we frequently think that being blinded is when you can't see anything because there's not enough data to comprehend. But this is a blindness that comes when there's too much data, too much light is there's so much to see I can't process it. It's, it's bombarding my senses and my understanding and everything is being challenged. Suddenly his eyes were open and he was seeing things that he'd never understood or seen before. He was blinded because his eyes were open. That's odd, isn't it? Now, this is a really... Uh, compared to what happened for Paul, this illustration is hardly carries it, but when I was about three years old, I think, Australian money changed. It went from pounds and pence to dollars and cents. Now, I wasn't aware enough of the process to understand how that all happened, but there would have come a time when if you had pounds and pence that once were of value, they would have become of no value. You couldn't spend them. I mean, if you held on to them till now, they're probably worth a lot more. <laughs> but at the time, forget that bit, at the time, the value system changed. At one stage, it was really valuable to have lots of pounds and pence, and then they let you know that it was going to change. And if you held on to your pounds and pence, they lost their coinage. They lost their exchange value. They became effectively worthless. They weren't rare. Everyone had them, so they weren't even valuable at that level. And dollars and cents, the new value system came in. That's kind of what's happened here with Paul. Only it's even worse in a way because it's almost like he's so surrounded by pounds and pence that he can't even see the value of the dollars and cents until he gets all that stuff out of the way. I considered those things as loss. They got in my way. They gave me an alternate value system that I found satisfying for most of my life. They actually distracted me away from the real value, from what was really, really important. So Paul is a very changed man. I guess you can hear that in, in his testimony. Because he then comes out and says, all that stuff is but rubbish. I just want to know Jesus. And he doesn't just keep that as some kind of airy, fairy things. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Really? You want to know the fellowship of his sufferings? I want to be conformed to Christ's death. Excuse me? You want to go from being up here in the society, in the religion, with power, with position, with authority, with all that sort of stuff. You want to come down here and know suffering and be conformed to death? 
Is that making sense? What is going on with that? Paul was so struck by his encounter with Christ, things shifted so significantly for him. He wasn't trying to want the new things. He genuinely shifted in his desire. And so he came to see that the vulnerability with which Christ lived, the suffering that Christ allowed himself to engage in, the death that Jesus deliberately chose to allow to happen, he didn't kill himself, but he allowed the death to come to him, all of that was really rich and valuable and he desired it as strongly as he ever desired all the other stuff before. He knew that's where life was. He knew that's where God could be discovered. He knew that was how to bring other people into the richness and fullness of eternal life as well. To look at Jesus, to follow Jesus, to make Jesus known, to help others to do the same. And he talks about that I may attain to the resurrection. And that word attain means to meet face to face the resurrection, to, to come into uh, actual relational contact with the power of the resurrection. Now, this is a bit tricky, I think, because in a sense, the power of the resurrection is the power that enables us to choose to be vulnerable now. The power of the resurrection is that it sets us free from the fear of death. Now, it doesn't stop us from dying. Resurrection actually depends on you dying. There's no resurrection if there's no death. So we don't avoid death. We avoid the fear of death. And that is a really important dynamic in every part of life, in every relationship, in every task you undertake, because fear is a debilitating thing. And there's all kinds of little deaths that we encounter day by day in all our relationships. I mean, the more important the relationship, the more critical that sense of potential death is, the death of the relationship even. I know this from my relationship with Jo, the you know, closest person on earth I, I'm with. And I've known her for 25 years and we're very, very close and it still scares me sometimes to have conversations with her because I feel so vulnerable and I could choose not to be vulnerable. And the power of the resurrection is it says, allow yourself to be vulnerable. There may be a death involved. It won't be the end. You'll get through it. That is the power of resurrection. Now, I believe that goes on into its fullness, into whatever happens next. I can't tell you about that because I haven't got there yet. But I know the power of resurrection and it is the power to bring you into the fullness of life through death and out the other side. I think that's a critical part of the Gospel. And Paul says at the end there, I don't think I've attained all this. I don't think I've arrived yet. But forgetting what's behind, I'm going for what's ahead. And this is another extremely radical move. 
because most of our other religious inclinations are about maintenance. Ancient Near Eastern fertility religions were all about doing whatever was required to bring the rains at the right time and to be able to sow the crops at the right time and get the yields at the right time. They're very circular. It's all about maintaining life. But the whole thrust of biblical revelation is, no, we're going somewhere. We're leaving behind something. We're leave. Abraham left behind his people and went to a new place. And the people wandered in the wilderness and they were going for a new place. And even as they arrived in their new place, they knew there was something that God was calling them into. The trajectory of biblical faith is we're going somewhere. We're not just trying to maintain existence. It's not about survival. It's about moving to the deeper, richer, fuller, more complete constantly. And so Paul says, not interested in finality, interested in fidelity. Paul was so transformed by his encounter with the risen Christ. All his values got shifted. That which had been so valuable to him before became worse than worthless. It got in the way It was not a matter of reluctantly being pulled away from what he used to like and being told to go over there because he had to. No, his values shifted. His heart shifted. His passions and desires shifted. He was going after a much fuller life, a deeper life, something that held him in a much more complete way. The deepest places of his heart were changed and transformed, much like were promised by the prophet Jeremiah when he said, Uh, I will give you the desires of your heart. Which we sometimes think means God's going to give me everything I want, but I think means God's going to give you desires that you didn't have before and transform your heart. That's what Paul discovered. Shall we pray? Yeah. Lord, we thank you that an encounter with you is a life-transforming experience. We thank you that Paul got that, or it got him. And we see the fruit of that in his letters and in his ministry. We ask that your spirit would open our hearts, our eyes and our ears, that we might be blinded by so much light and hear your call and be transformed. Not try to be transformed, but be transformed by your spirit to the glory of your name. Amen.